Oh, you're listening to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. Left Out examines news and opinions and views from the from perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is being produced by Bijo Lakfani. Uh, listeners are invited to call us as usual at uh, 412-268-9728, 268-WRCT, or to send us uh, electronic mail. You can reach us by sending mail to bob at leftout.info during the program. We'll be monitoring the mail as well. We have a couple of announcements today. One is, as always, be sure to listen to Democracy Now! every weekday at 8 a.m. on WRCT. And I'll just add into that, be sure to listen to the other uh, offerings of WRCT, the public affair offerings, at 6 o'clock every, um, every uh, evening uh, on weekdays, including Rust Belt Radio on Mondays. Also, uh, there's a um, new bill pending in the state legislature to insist on voter-verified paper ballots for electronic voting machines in Pennsylvania. And we have a link on our website, uh, leftout.info, uh, where you can go and look at, uh, look at the information from the PA Verified Voting Group about the new bill and, and what you can do to help get this bill passed. Right. There's a uh, survey there to be filled out, I think, to, uh, to express your views and express your support for the bill. And uh, I think it's being sponsored locally by uh, Dan Frankel, and I'm not sure who else uh, from the legislature. So that's a topic we've uh, covered on Left Out previously, and uh, hopefully we'll get some action uh, in this uh, session of legislation. legislation. All right. So our first uh, uh, first segment tonight, we're we're honored to have as a guest, uh, Professor Sean Carroll, who is a biologist from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, who's written uh, just a newly published book uh, called uh, "Endless Forms, Most Beautiful: The New Science of Evo Devo," which is a book about e- evolutionary developmental psychology. Uh, Professor That's Carroll, psychology. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> biology. What did I say? Uh, Professor Carroll, welcome to uh, Left Out, despite my mistakes. Thanks for having me. I psychology be the next book. <laughs> okay. So I wonder if you could start out by explaining to us this kind of a mouthful, I tripped over it already, uh, evolutionary developmental biology, which is apparently abbreviated EVO-DEVO, and I wondered if you could uh, perhaps tell us a bit about your field. Sure. Well, the EVO-DEVO is meant to save you from tripping over all those syllables, so it's, it's certainly not the shorthand that we use. Well, the essence of the field is understanding the connection between embryonic development what goes on in building a complex individual from a single-celled egg, and understanding how that relates to the evolution of forms over long periods of evolutionary time. That relationship has been understood for a long time in, in general, from the, even from the days of Darwin, as an intimate one, because all changes in form, everything we see that differs between species in terms of the number, the size, the shape, the color, of body structures and body parts, all those changes occur by changes in the process of development. So if you think about development sort of as a long movie, which for humans runs about nine months and maybe for a bug might run just a few days, and think of all those frames in there, the way change comes about in the course of evolution is by the splicing and changing of frames, individual parts of the developmental process. So that's why understanding development in living species today is such an important uh, set of clues, gives us such an important set of clues to the process of evolution over long periods of time. So as I... 
Uh, the, uh, so a key factor here is you can kind of think of there's a, a, a uh, excuse my my naive and simplistic understanding, but there's a key, a key set of uh, of mechanisms or instructions or processes that happen that kind of get clicked together to form the form the uh, developmental process for an individual, and that these have some uh, significance. Uh, you've learned learned a lot about them to say something about development of species. I wonder if you could expand on that. Right. So the, the general field of embryology, which has gone on for a long time, has a lot of significance, for example, to medicine. So understanding how body parts get put in the right place, they have the right size, they're connected up in the right way, that's just a fundamental aspect of basic biology and important to medicine. Um, for a long time, biologists really didn't understand what was going on inside embryos. You could sort of watch from the outside, but it really was just this spectacular pageant where you know, form would emerge, but we really didn't understand what was going on at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. All this started to change about a little more than 20 years ago with breakthroughs in genetics that allowed us to identify key genes, bodybuilding and organ building genes that um, were really devoted to this process of construction. A, a very small fraction of the total number of genes that we or any other animal has that are uh, involved in this process of shaping and sculpting the forming animal. I didn't read your. I didn't read the whole book. I just read uh, little parts of it. This is Danny, um, and I, I noticed you talked a little about uh, the dark matter, the dark, uh, the dark part of the uh, the genome. Which is my understanding is that the, the majority of the of the um, the genetic material is the so-called well. They call it the dark material. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's not understood what it's for. But it seemed like in your book you actually had uh, there's just more information now about what that's what that actually does. Right, a lot more information. So the the two major discoveries that I could tell you just encapsulate sort of the book. But this is work that's gone on for as I said more than twenty years. The the first stunning surprise that happened was that it was discovered that animals, no matter how different, even fruit flies and humans, sea urchins and corals, that these animals share a toolkit of bodybuilding genes that is very similar from one to the other animal. And that surprised us because the bias, and it's just sort of human intuition, is that animals that look so different would be built according to different rules and using different sort of construction materials, if you like. But once we understood that the same genes are involved in building our eyes and in building bug eyes and in building our limbs and building bug limbs and even sea urchin feet, and the same genes are involved in building our hearts and hearts of simpler creatures, now we understand that these genes have been around for a long time, and the whole kingdom, the whole animal kingdom, has evolved by using these genes in different ways. And the dark matter is the parts of our DNA and of other species' DNA that contains the instructions for how genes are used. So for many years, we've been able to look at DNA and understand which parts are decoded into information used in cells. But there was all this other stuff around. It once was dubbed junk junk DNA. But in that junk DNA are the operating instructions for using these genetic tools in the proper way. And it's that part of the DNA more than any other that changes in the evolution of form. So to boil it right down, we have a very simpler, simple, similar, I'm sorry, uh, array of genes as, say, a mouse does, 
but we are built using those genes in different ways than a mouse does. And it's because of this additional part of the material, the genetic material, is, it, is what's controlling how that's deployed? That's right. And understanding the rules of how those operating instructions work has been a much more challenging uh, journey than trying to figure out, for example, just decoding. Decoding uh, into proteins. Information. Pardon yeah. me? Sorry, decoding into proteins, that was discovered a long time ago. long time ago. That code was broken in the early 1960s, but we're still working on the code that uh, operates uh, the genes in the genome. So can you give a, a good example? So you mentioned, for example, uh, one that's quite astonishing is eyes all the way through uh, many different life forms. And uh, as everyone, I think, uh, knows from their even grade school uh, biology, the, uh, the eyes, for example, of, uh, of a fruit fly are radically different in structure from, uh, let's say, a mammalian eye or something. And I wondered if you could elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, so from external appearances, when you look at those, if you look at a fruit fly and it has these 800 little unit eyes, that's what each, what's underneath every little facet of that sort of crystalline-looking structure, um, from the outside, that looks entirely different than the camera-type eye that we have with the lens, et cetera. Well, but when you get to a deeper level, the cells in that eye that detect light are more similar to the cells in our eyes that detect light. And then when you get to a deeper level and ask, well, what are the proteins in those cells that detect light? They're the same proteins. And when you get to a deeper level and say, well, what about the genes that decide that those cells are going to be made and how they're going to be arranged in space? And those are the same genes. And so really, looks are deceiving that we, you know, we're such a visual species. We look from the outside and we go, wow, that's so different from that. But it turns out, in, in terms of the building materials and a lot of the biochemistry, it's very similar. And what's going on is that similar types of cells are just being arranged in different ways, different layers, different sizes, different shapes, and that's the sort of diversity that we see. The cellular and genetic building blocks of animals are very similar from one to another. So that's quite astonishing because... It shows a, a connectivity uh, or relationship amongst uh, various rather disparate life forms like fruit flies and people that is more than just the, more, more than, that's really rather deep. It's really very much fundamental to the way in which both organisms and species uh, develop. It's strong enough that it's really caused some rethinking about sort of our picture of evolution. Not that we doubt evolution, and maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit, we will. but the expectation was that things would be so different we wouldn't find these common threads. So the common threads, while they stun us at one level, it's also very gratifying because it helps us make a lot more sense about how such diversity and complexity has evolved. So the, the comment I wanted to make was, I think, I'm, I'm trying to formulate this, I haven't really come up with the right way of saying it yet, but we're computer scientists, and... There's got to be an analogy in computer science uh, to this, and one idea that just came to my mind was, for example, in computer graphics, there's, there's software packages to render, you know, scenes, and uh, you would render anything, any different shape, different structure, different color with the same piece of software. All this, there's only one small thing that's different, the shape, the coordinates of the, uh, the surfaces, the triangles, and the color designation, but then the whole uh, the rest of the system that renders the the, the thing on your screen is identical for no matter what's being rendered. Is that, I don't know, that's probably a, not a great that, analogy. That sounds but. like a good analogy. I mean, I, in, in, I guess the other extrapolation I would make is to say, 
you know, this code, as, as you think about every species or you think about major types of animals, you know, think about worms and butterflies and zebras, that that code's not being written from scratch each time, that pieces of code have been around for a long time. Yeah. And you can use large chunks of that code in new ways, and that's sort of the creative side of, of evolution, and you don't have to write it from scratch. You don't keep reinventing complexity from scratch. And when we think about things like, let's just go to the eye, um, it's not a matter that these eyes of all sorts of types, which at one time biologists thought that eyes had been invented from scratch as many as 40 to 60 times. Well, now we realize, no, it's not a from-scratch process. It's a process that begins with a common set of genetic tools, a common set of cell types, and it's a matter of building sort of different housing for these cell types and arranging them in different ways. And I think probably your analogy to the rendering in computer graphics is it's not a matter of writing the code from scratch. It's a matter of making all sorts of permutations upon uh, pieces of code that you've already written. Right. So in some sense, to continue that analogy, if it's not too far off, is uh, there's a certain aspect of it which you might think of as the program and a certain aspect of it which you might think of as the data or the parameters, perhaps which right. caused the program to behave in a different way. It, it's quite remarkable because I think anyone's uh, naive understanding uh, would be something like, you know, the DNA for a, a human being is a radically different piece of text, a different computer program than the DNA for a rabbit or the DNA for a fungus. And, and actually what you're saying is they're really r- remarkably similar. Remarkably similar at all sorts of levels. So just to sort of march out from our closest relatives to our most distant ones, uh, you probably know the figure thrown around that we're a little more than 1% different at the DNA level. I know, uh, it's staggering. Yeah, it's staggering. Yeah, but if you look at, if you just say, you know, what about the complement of genes? We're more than 99% identical in terms of the, say, roughly 25,000 genes we have. We're more than 99% identical with a mouse. We're pretty substantially overlapping with the genes that exist in fruit flies. And there are hundreds of genes that go as deep to the organisms that live in the thermal vents of Yellowstone National Park, so-called archaea, that are some of the oldest life forms on the planet. And these genes, which carry out a lot of the routine operations within the cell, have been around really for almost as long as complex life itself. So these these pieces of, of DNA code go very, very deep in time. And the revelation of those things is, you know, not only giving us a profound understanding of how new things evolve, but also telling us a lot about those connections between all living forms. So we're talking uh, with Professor uh, Sean Carroll, who's a biologist from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's written a new book called Endless Forms, Most Beautiful in the New Science of Evo Devo, which is uh, to do with this evolutionary developmental biology. I think I got it right that time. Listeners are welcome to call us at uh, 412-268-9728, 268-WRCT, if you have any questions for, for Professor Carroll. So one thing I, I wondered in, in your book is... Um, was there any uh, like remarkable like you, most many of the discoveries you talk about are something on the order of the last twenty years roughly? And I wondered if there was like some one thing that was enabling that made all of these discoveries possible, or is it just happens to be that things came, uh, things ripened at uh, at a very uh, uh, happened happened to ripen around this time from many years of very difficult work. I, I think a few threads came together. It was probably not just one thing. Um, it was a combination of 
what we generally refer to as molecular genetics, the ability to manipulate DNA, mm-hmm. which grew up in the 1970s and became available sort of in, on most, to most laboratories by the early 1980s. And that was a key discovery tool. We, we didn't really have any way of comparing species um, at the genetic level until we could use molecular techniques. So, you know, our views of species were really just from the outside in, from the viewpoint of, you know, comparative anatomy and things like that right. ever since Darwin. So those surprises could only emerge when we had tools to... So is this like X-ray crystallography, or is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, it's really recombinant DNA. DNA. It's the Uh same technology that that led to genetic engineering of drugs Mm -hmm. and new diagnostics and forensic DNA in the courtroom, etc. All these analytical tools and chemistries that are associated with manipulating DNA, isolating DNA, sequencing DNA, um, that, that started to explode in the 1970s, but as I said, it became sort of a common part of the biologist's um, weaponry in the in the early 1980s. So that was a really important thread. Was the other really important thread was um, visual, and this is so important. I think in, in so many branches of science, and we can really appreciate it in biology as well. New ways of seeing, and microscopes really took a step up in sophistication and um, clarity. And a combination of tools emerged that allowed us to peer in on this developing world of the embryo in super high resolution, virtually in real time. And I I have to sort of draw the analogy with the Hubble telescope, that when you can see things for the first time ever, often some things that you have only the fuzziest and mostly incorrect notions about become crystal clear. And this field of EvoDevo is so visually driven. Uh, most of our data is in the form very similar to that of the Hubble telescope. It's pictures of things going on in embryos that have been revealed using whole new tools. It's also very aesthetically beautiful, and I think that has a lot to do with sort of the satisfaction and the um, conceptual understanding we have is that what, what we see going on really makes a lot of sense with what eventually comes out of the process of development. So it, it, it was technologically driven, and it was cross-fertilized from various ways. And then once those tools start being used in combination, it, it becomes a snowball downhill. Yeah, I got that impression from your book. Yeah, um, I, really I wanted to mention to our listeners that, uh, as Professor Carroll is indicating, there are a lot of uh, fascinating photographs uh, from, from Professor Carroll's lab and the research of others in the field uh, that are reproduced in the book that give you an idea of the kind of, uh, the kind of information that they're using to, uh, to, to guide some of their research. And so I recommend, I recommend to our listeners to have a look at the book for that reason as well. So, yeah, they can also see this kind of imagery on, on my website, which if you at least either there's a link for the program or if you I, Google me, it'll be the first one you find. And okay. And uh, certainly welcome to enjoy that. As, as usual, we have a link to, uh, to our, our guest website, and it's on uh, leftout.info on latest program, leftout.info slash latest, to look at uh, today's show, the notes from today's show. We have a link to Professor Carroll's website and to his book, uh, book uh, web page for his book as well. So I notice another uh, uh, one one uh, one chapter in here that's really uh, very fascinating is about butterfly spots, and I, I happen to know from reading your book that that was a particular discovery of yours, and so I wondered whether you might like to elaborate a bit on that. Well, one of the questions I, I guess I'm going to back up for a second okay. and explain why would we do this sort of thing. Very good, yeah, thanks. Um, you know, most of us are aren't going to confess this too often, but you know, a lot of biologists got into this because they had a 
childhood interest in things, and we're still sort of stunned that we can do these things as grown-ups and, and people pay attention. <laughs> and uh, like many of my colleagues, you know, I was fascinated with animal form, whether that was fossils or animals in the zoo or things that I could find in my backyard, whatever the case may be. And, of course, few groups of animals are as spectacular as butterflies, and the color patterns they present have raised all sorts of mysteries that naturalists have wanted to understand better for a long time. So what we pursued was we pursued uh, general questions about what did the butterfly invent? Where, where did these spectacular color patterns come from? How did they come upon the generation of these things and it, that other species had not discovered? And the, the major upshot of our work is that these new patterns, and this is the generality we think in biology, evolved by old genes, genes that have been around for a very, very long time, learning new tricks. And what we mean by new tricks is that the genes have jobs that they've done for a long, long time. And in this case, some of these genes involved in making wing patterns are involved in building limbs and parts of the nervous system and things like that. But they have an entirely new function in butterflies where they're used to drop color patterns on the wings. And that insight that something that we sort of see as, um, well, I don't want to say it's superfluous, but it's, it, it, it's a bit of a luxury, you might think, to an animal to be able to have this canvas out on its wing that it's using to display to mates and to hide and things like this. And um, that the, the tools for making those patterns were there. What really had to evolve was new ways of using those tools. And so the butterfly for all its beauty, has also taught us something general about the animal kingdom. Uh, so we have a uh, caller, uh, Professor Carroll. We have a caller on the line, uh, Jane. I uh, wondered if you'd go ahead, please. Yes. Hello, Dr. Carroll. Hi. Um, speaking of new tricks, what about old tricks that a species doesn't need anymore? What happens uh, to that genetic information? That's a great question. Um, Thank you, caller. I, I don't deal with it much in this book, and unfortunately... Um, but I can point you in certain directions, but I will tell you that I have a new book that will be out next fall, also from W.W. Norton, that deals with this question in depth. Oh. And the really cool answer is that we see um, the genetic information that has become dispensable to species in the form of fossil genes in the DNA. These are bits of code that we can recognize, but they're eroding away, much as a rock or a fossil erodes away at the seashore. And they're no longer functional. They no longer encode fully intact information. But their state of decay is telling us something, that a species has shifted away from a previous lifestyle and is now living in some other way and does not need this genetic information. And the reason why these fossil genes arise is that across all of DNA, there's a steady beat of mutation. Mutations arise as completely by accident as organisms copy themselves. And if those mutations are harmful, they'll be weeded out. But in parts of DNA that are no longer necessary for the organism, those mutations will accumulate. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing information in DNA in the process of decay as mutations are accumulating in parts of DNA that were important to species ancestors but no longer to those species today. 
And, and are you able to track uh, these two, uh, uh, you know, two forms, like uh, to the to various, you know, uh, superficially visible aspects of a species? Are you able to uh, relate, sure. relate the, the decay in the DNA to a decay in functionality? Sure. Yeah. Uh, some of the best examples of, of fossil genes involve, we've been speaking about the eyes, involve the uh, proteins that are used for color vision in animal eyes. And when animals adapt to certain environments, say either the deep water uh, or to a mm. nocturnal lifestyle, mm. um, the pressure is relieved for them seeing all wavelengths of light. And what you, what you then see is you see fossil genes that uh, in, used to encode the proteins used to detect uh, wavelengths of light that were important to their ancestors. And this is just something we've seen easily, almost a dozen examples of this so far. So, so you see the old sort of remnant... It's similar, but not the same, because it's eroded from, from the original version that actually worked. That's right. Um, and, but, and, these, and, and only in these species, and the linkage to their lifestyle is very clear, if you surveyed all sorts of um, uh, daylight-living mammals, you generally would find these genes to be intact in every one of them. But if you go to, for example, you know, some nocturnal monkeys that uh, you know, no longer come out during the daytime or... Uh, uh, blind mole rats that now uh, burrow in the ground, you see that those genes are selectively inactivated um, in those species. And, of course, that's just fantastic evidence for how natural selection works, which is it, it preserves what's necessary and it lets go anything that is dispensable. But also, couldn't it be the case, or is this ever been observed to occur, where a gene becomes uh, unused and then gets somehow reused for some other purpose, like you were saying with the butterfly colorings or something. So a gene which yeah, is sort of sitting around... The I'm, I'm giving in response to Jane's question is uh, a case where once, once the coding part of the gene is inactivated, it doesn't come back. Hmm. But the example I'm giving in the butterflies has to do with genes that have many jobs. These, these bodybuilding and organ building and pattern making genes, the special part of the genetic toolkit, um, when they have many jobs, those genes are very hard to inactivate. If, if you take out one of these bodybuilding genes, the effects are often catastrophic because multiple uh, body parts or organs are affected, and that's generally not going to be good for the organism. If you mutate proteins that are really just devoted to some task in some particular cell type or tissue type, um, if the organism has been evolving away from that lifestyle, that may be tolerated. So the genes I, I described to you before that build eyes, if you mutate those, the animal winds up eyeless, uh, as well as there are often other, other uh, problems. So um, there's different penalties. There's different sort of degrees of catastrophe when mutations happen. Some are well-tolerated and some are disastrous. We have a caller on the line. Uh, caller, go ahead. Hi, uh, Dr. Carroll. My name is Chris. I'm a biology major at the University of Pittsburgh. I just wanted to say uh, UW-Madison, your genetics department, is uh, well known for what kind of work you do. And I was just wondering where, uh, where you see molecular genetics uh, going in the next 10 years. A lot of professors at Caltech, MIT, Princeton, they're uh, really incorporating engineering principles into biology and trying to uh, created for themselves by the term of synthetic biology. I was wondering where you see this whole field of uh, genetics going in the next 10, 20 years. Well, thanks for the question, Chris, and for the kind comments about Wisconsin. Uh, genetics has grown in its 
central importance in biology probably uh, faster than any other discipline. You, everyone's heard of the genome projects, particularly for human genetics, but there's all sorts of unheralded genome projects that have made work in all sorts of model organisms from corn to dogs to fruit flies so much easier. And what that means is that all sorts of biological processes that we've wanted to understand are in our gun sites. Uh, the genetics of behavior, um, certainly the genetics of complex human diseases, um, understanding, for example, the processes that renew our stem cells will be another major area. And then the evolution side, understanding the evolution of humans and our special traits like our body form, speech, language, things like this. So I think there's always a, a side of biology that's going to have its applied payoff, but there's also the side that's going to try to pursue the mysteries that have eluded us for the longest period of time. And I think behavior, speech, language, and the evolution of these characters will be um, one of the most fertile and uh, probably uh, stunning areas in the upcoming decade. Well, there, your thesis topic, Chris, is all laid out for you now. Uh, all right, thanks for that call. Okay, so uh, uh, I wanted to uh, turn to a few other points that are raised uh, toward the end of your book and also that have been coming up this week. Uh, as many of our listeners will know, uh, there's, been a seri there's been a series of articles this week in the New York Times called uh, The Evolution Debate, which I have to say has kind of gotten my hackles up because as far as I'm aware, although I'm not a biologist, but as far as I'm aware, there's, there's no significant debate about evolution. So maybe as our first point, I wondered if you could comment on that aspect of things. Well, the, the first thing to say is to, of course, agree with you, which is anyone in command of even a portion of the facts about evolution that come from genetics, paleontology, comparative anatomy, developmental biology, whatever you like, there's no question about the fact that life has evolved, that complexity has evolved, that species are descended from ancestors. And to deny this is to deny the bedrock of biology and geology and an incredible amount of human achievement. So I don't think that's a good place to go. Um, but what has come up and what is getting in a lot of press is this movement dubbed intelligent design. Now, the essence, if you want me to define that, the yes, essence please. of intelligent design is that some things are too complex to explain by biological evolution. And the advocates of this view then... Uh, propose that these complex complexities are best explained by design, namely an intelligent designer, a synonym for God or some divinity. And they would like to see that possibility discussed explicitly in scientific classrooms um, as an alternative to evolutionary science or as a dimension that evolutionary science does not uh, delve into. Yeah, so one of the uh, one of the points is, uh, I'm, a, I'm sorry to say, the president and the Senate majority leader recently endorsed the idea that we should be teaching the controversy. I mean, after all, aren't you just being unreasonable, Professor Carroll, by refusing to even discuss what the controversy is? I, I'd be happy to discuss what the controversies are about evolution within scientific, the scientific realms. It's the things we didn't know about evolution that motivated me 25 years ago to go into this field as a scientist. So, sure, we can talk about what we do and what we don't know, 
but we sure as heck have to do a really good job of talking about what we do know. And I'm quite convinced that we haven't come anywhere close to that. Um, and um, this is reinforced by the way I've seen this matter handled in the media, in that I think in general um, the common knowledge about evolution is probably stuck somewhere between about 1950 and 1970 in this country without any uh, updating from the vast and dramatic discoveries that come from areas like Evo Devo, from the study of the DNA record, um, and from all sorts of new technologies that allow us to peer into the past with um, great accuracy and to reconstruct it with great confidence. So it's really um, kind of a Trojan horse here. It's, it's not about teaching the controversy. It's about sneaking in what is basically a theological doctrine into the public schools and offering some counterpart to biological evolution, which traditionally uh, a significant segment of people in this country have been uncomfortable with. Um, if you go back 80 years to the Scopes trial, uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of school districts at that time were endeavoring to ban the teaching of evolution. Twenty years ago, um, a movement called scientific creationism was trying to uh, explain that there was some sort of legitimate science behind so-called theory, you know, theological theories of, of creation. And those were struck down as um, unconstitutional by the federal courts. So now we have intelligent design, sort of the third phase of this continuing movement, and it will be very interesting to see how the federal courts handle it. So... <clears throat> This is something we discussed on the phone earlier today. That um, I, I read some of those articles in the New York Times, and we have links to them on our website. Right. Uh, if, reader, if listeners want to go to leftout.info, um, and one of the things I noticed, they've got this guy named Behe, B-E-H-E, who's a, who's a scientist, who's a you know legitimate. I mean, I guess he's a credentialed scientist who's come out in favor of the intelligent design hypothesis. But trying to understand what what he what his position is from reading the article, I might it was rather confusing, but. What it seemed to be was that he said that, well, he agreed that evolution, that that's one species, species did change from one to another. We couldn't use the word evolution, of course, but you could, he did acknowledge that one species did change into another species over long periods of time, but that there was no, the steps were, uh, how, how he didn't believe those steps could take place through the ordinary mechanistic um, machinery that, that, that you have talked about. Um, he believed that God or some other entity, some other being had gone in and changed the genes in a way that caused this change from one species to another. But it seemed to me that he's already given up a tremendous amount of ground. He's, he's already acknowledging that, yes, humans and apes descended from the same being. So it seems like he's already basically given up the biggest, I mean, uh, what, what the, 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 the creationists most object to. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the, the idea that humans evolved from a common ancestor with chimpanzees is probably the most upsetting to people and has been for 150 years. And uh, uh, To be honest, I find it beautiful, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I get a lot of communication, I think, when I visit apes yeah, it's great. In, in the zoo. But, uh, no, that is the part that really bothers people. It does. And so yeah. in this movement, there's um, a whole range of viewpoints, and uh, Professor Behe's viewpoint uh, does accept certain points of uh, evolutionary science, but he takes the ground that he won't feed as ground on what he calls irreducible complexity. He sees certain things that are too complex, at least for him to understand them, as having evolved by natural processes. 
what's interesting is that the two examples that he has spent most of his time um, promoting as examples of irreducible complexity have been fully picked apart as uh, not irreducible and fully understandable as uh, evolved. And those, those are? Um, and, and, of course, those arguments, which are, have to be, they get fairly technical, and the, the arguments have been made by other scientists. Um, you know, it, it's pretty hard for the public to follow that sort of discourse. But um, what's what, what happening... Were the, what were the examples? Well, there are a couple... There's, there's all sorts technical? of things, biochemical mm-hmm. pathways in our oh, body uh-huh. and uh, physical structures that you see in certain species that... Um, the idea being that, you know, gee, these are so remarkably complex, how could they ever come about in some gradual way? And the, the typical examples are blood clotting right. in our cells and um, the structure of a uh, piece of a bacterium called the flagellum, which whips around and helps propel them through water. And uh, while this has been fully refuted, in other words, essentially it's a hypothesis that's been discredited um, as is the normal, ordinary process of science, um, no examples have been proposed now from the intelligent design camp to, to replace them. And I think what they're learning is that as they become more specific in terms of scientific proposition, um, they are very vulnerable to the ordinary scientific process of idea testing and validation, verification, and, and most times um, <laughs> destruction. So the We're all used to formulating hypotheses, and we get somewhere in science by finding out where those ideas are wrong, how they have to be either refined or abandoned. But if your motivation is political or philosophical or theological, you're going to be more reluctant to abandon these points that um, you've built this other edifice upon. So I see it, intelligent design and its supposed scientific content as just going to have to be in a full-scale retreat as the constant discovery process out of orthodox science just removes these refuges that they've tried to seek in terms of things being just too complicated to explain. So we have, I want to come back to that point in a moment, but we have a caller on the line, and I will call her. Uh, go ahead, please, for Professor Carroll. Well, my, uh, my question might be related. I'm uh, not a biologist, not even a scientist, really, but uh, kind of a, a science layman. And I just wondered, is it possible to, or is it legitimate to, uh, if I was faced with a, you know, trying to argue with a creationist, uh, is it legitimate to say that science is not, the creationist wants to find, wants to know what the truth is, wants to know what God's truth is. And I wondered, does it, does it, is it a legitimate argument to say that the scientist is not necessarily looking for truth, but science is looking for explanations that work. And So, Professor Carroll, would you like to comment on that? Well, those are interesting shades there. I, I, I would say as a scientist, we are looking for the truth. We're looking for the best picture of reality we can that holds up to the most rigorous testing. So if we just, just give us an example, let's say, okay, DNA. What information is DNA? Well, there's all sorts of things we've learned in the last 50 years that make us very confident that DNA contains the information for making more copies of our cells, for carrying out all the physiology of the cell, and that it's accidental changes in DNA that are the raw material for changes in future generations. Now, that's that's information you can bank on. That's truth that, I think the way I put it is, you know, there are truths in science that I would bet, you know, 
on the, the heads of my children. <laughs> then there are hypotheses in science that I, I bet on the heads of my graduate students. And we go out <laughs> and we find out what's right and what's wrong and keep right on moving. For the creationist or for the theologian, I do think that their, their mode of operation is entirely different. And the, the place where we really get in difficulties is when that steps into the scientific realm. I'm not saying that theologians shouldn't have an interest in science. I, I, just, I tell you in the book that I, I first learned evolution from Catholic priests, and some of my most interesting conversations are with theologians, generally theologians that fully accept evolution as an explanation of biological history. But they are, as theologians, seeking levels of explanation, seeking understanding that's well outside the scientific realm. Mm. And so science, there is a place, many scientists believe, where the two areas of inquiry can coexist side by side. But the conflict comes when, I think, faith-driven ideas masquerade as science. It just doesn't work. Caller, Sorry, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Thank you for that, uh, for that interesting call. Um, I, uh, oh, what was I going to say? I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, I know <laughs> what I, I, so what I wanted to come back to was, uh, uh, Oh, wait, you I know, know what I was oh, going to say. Go ahead. Sorry, right, let, so me, let me get that. I want to ask this, this question. Uh, one of the things that we talk about and left out all the time, and maybe this is too much of a tangent, but, uh, is the media and problems with the media. And we typically talk about their coverage of the war, their coverage of, of, uh, political issues and uh, the things that they leave out and the mis, mis, you know, don't explain. But I think uh, in this whole area, I think we have another example of, um, of the way the media covers things as, as being very, uh, very damaging to the country. Maybe you could comment on that, too. Well, I, I think the thing that's driving me crazy is some notion that the way issues like this should be handled is that you get one representative of, of quote, both sides, some scientist and some for example, intelligent design proponent, and you let them have it out for six or eight minutes on CNN or whatever sort of form, form you want, and that that's giving it equal time and that's sort of fair, et cetera. not fair at all. That scientist has 150 years of work by tens and hundreds of thousands of scientists behind them. The entire infrastructure of medicine, et cetera, it's not at all fair. And six or eight minutes doesn't at all represent the uh, body of support, the body of evidence, and let's face it, the arguments can get pretty quickly if you, if you get into argument, could get fairly technical and, and be difficult to um, sort of arbitrate if you're, you're there as a host. And so I think just the whole uh, evolution, if you like, of media to be, well, we let both sides talk and let everybody else make up their minds. Well, I certainly believe both sides should have a chance to talk, but somebody has to let everybody know what the weight of evidence is. The journalist has to do a bit of work to explain, well, where is the objective evidence? Where are these ideas coming from? What is the um, proof or what is the um, uh, body of thought that, that yeah. various people are, are relying on? And, you know, I'm, I, to me, this debate, if you want to call it that, is equivalent to, you know, let's have an astrologer debate an astronomer. Yeah, or a absolutely. Healer, you know, debate a neurosurgeon. I mean, these are not equivalent bodies of thought. They're not in the same ballgame. Yet it's being treated as though these are, you know, equivalent alternatives. And that's the ridiculous position taken by, taken by Frist and by President Bush that, oh, we should just, you know, present these and let students make up their minds. No, there's a scientific reality, and 
we, our, our standard of living and our future depends upon having a scientifically literate public. No, one of the things I noticed in your book, there's a, a, a little table in there about uh, the belief in, in evolution, basically. It's, I won't give the details, but the U.S. basically comes in dead last among all the, basically all the first world nations. Yeah, wasn't it 39th of, out of 39 or something? Yeah, like it was uh, yeah. basically the, the number of people who believe that evolution is either wrong or either has, either mostly wrong or completely wrong is, uh, it's right in there. You could, you remind us, the could you remind us, please? I'm trying to flip to that page. Uh, for yeah, the, the numbers are going to be greater than 50% of people have either complete uh, doubt or some doubts about the um, reality of evolution. And, yeah, that's at the dead last of, of first world countries. And now, with you know, what's in the press right now and intelligent design being debated in 20 states at the moment, it's going to be a major federal case in, in, in Dover. It's going to be in Trident Harrisburg next month. Um, right. You know, the rest of the world is bent over double laughing. I mean, so many parts of the first world and beyond made their comfort with Darwin you know, decades, if not more than a century yeah, ago. It's... And you know, the irony is that in biology, the United States is the leading country in terms of discoveries in biology, including evolutionary science. And so, you know, here we are, such a great leader in the world in science and technology, such an innovator, um, probably, you know, a, a far disproportionate share of, of Nobel Prizes in areas like genetics and molecular biology. And yet the public is... Uh, hasn't really moved very far, I'd say, in, in many, many decades on yeah. this point. So, Perhaps so not was, since so the trial days. I was going to just say that, that you know, one of the things that we're constantly complaining about our country, in a way, on this, this program, we're complaining about the election of Bush and other things, other examples of ignorance, such as this, this example in your book. Um, and so I'm telling my wife, and she says, why don't we leave the country? And then I think about what's great about this country. I mean, we've got, it's this tremendous division. We've got the greatest academic institutions, the greatest uh, sort of tradition of, of academic excellence in the, most, you know, in the arts and the sciences. And yet, on the other hand, we've got this immense gap in the education of most of our people. And the cynical exploitation of it. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, we, we have slipped backwards, and I think we've slipped backwards because, you know, politics is, you know, is a game of harvesting votes, and it's not always done mm -hmm. with the facts or our long-term best interest in mind. But, you know, one thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see purely scientific issues politicized. You could be a Republican, and you can be a real big supporter of evolutionary science. You can be a Democrat. You could be an anarchist, um, because these are issues of science. There are plenty of issues that are, uh, you know, the moral and uh, philosophical issues of the day that, uh, you know, science doesn't have the answers to. But on this front... Uh, science has an enormous foundation of evidence, and to doubt it is to jeopardize our leadership in the world of science and technology, and it's to jeopardize uh, all sorts of things, all sorts of areas of science that depend upon an understanding of evolution, uh, the management of our natural resources, uh, medicine. Uh, if, if you want to understand how to combat, you know, drug-resistant HIV and drug-resistant organisms, you better have an understanding of evolution. If you want to understand uh, pest, uh, uh, pest susceptibility in crops, if you understand uh, um, all sorts of things that have huge economic impact, you have to understand how the evolutionary machine works. 
So that's uh, that's a, an interesting point. It brings me actually back to what I liked very much about your book as a layman, as not a biologist, was that there's so much that in the science that's going on that that really addresses uh, and actually uh, answers a lot of the criticisms. There's a lot of uh, there are many aspects of this problem, but one of the one aspect of it is this uh, perpetually casting doubt on evolution that there are various uh, things that are not understood. So we talked briefly about uh, irreducible complexity. Um, which in your book, uh, the explanations in your book make very clear, and I wondered if you could amplify that as we finish up in the hour, um, how the, the scientific developments really are such that there is no serious doubt and that there is answers to these rather superficially puzzling questions about yeah. how like various complex mechanisms came to be. How did the Krebs cycle come about or how did the uh, blood clotting come about or, or so on? And I wondered if you could close by saying something about the scientific basis for that in answer to these, uh, to these attempts to raise doubts, to suggest that there is some deeply fundamental flaw that uh, scientists are cravenly hiding from the general public. Sure. Well, let's just start again with development. We take for granted that every organism can copy itself. And as I said, in a matter of hours, days, or months, that a whole complete individual is made from just a single fertilized egg. There's no doubt that's an everyday process. And I don't think many people look for divine intervention on a minute-by-minute basis to sculpt the making of any individual. That process we now understood, understand, and that process is as complex as anything we know on the planet. And from that process, we understand how complex things not just are put together in the, the matter of a single individual's lifespan, but over long eons of time how small changes in that process are accumulated and give us the diversity of life. Not only is there no serious doubt, there's no casual doubt about this process. And we have all sorts of independent lines of evidence from understanding embryos, from understanding DNA, from understanding the fossil record that all converge on a picture that make us quite confident that we understand the processes at work in building the great diversity of life. And so what I encourage is there's all this new information to sequence teeth into that I think enrich our understanding of life. They don't demean it whatsoever. And what we need to do is get that message out. And your book is uh, going a long way to, uh, to helping, uh, helping do that. So we've been talking with uh, Professor Sean Carroll, who's a professor of biology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who has written a new book called uh, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, The New Science of Evo Devo, which is telling us about exciting new developments in evolutionary and developmental biology uh, that we've been talking about for the last hour. Uh, professor Carroll, thank you very much for being on Left Out. Thanks for having me. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again when your new book, to when talk about your new book, <laughs> which I'm very interested in as well. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. So uh, that uh, finishes another program for us uh, on Left Out here on WRCT. Thank you to all our callers for listening today. As usual, you can look at our uh, webpage at leftout.info latest for the latest program and find links to the, uh, to the uh, information about Professor Carroll and his book and other articles that we were referring to in today's show. Uh, thanks again to Bijal Lakavani, who has uh, ably produced our program today. And thank you all for listening to Left Out.